0: I think America changes, I think the world changes, one conversation at a time. Um, I think it happens at Thanksgiving dinner when you finally stand up to your racist uncle or your homophobic aunt and say, hey, that's not okay to say that, Um, and let me tell you why. And I think those moments are what changes the entire culture. And I think they feel small sometimes, but they are actually what makes democracy and the beloved community work.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Allen, and this is Holy Heretics. Our guest today is a fellow self-proclaimed heretic. His name is Charlie McCallie, and he is the founding pastor of the Commons Church in Flagstaff, Arizona. His post degree is in biblical hermeneutics from the University of St Andrews in Scotland, which I want to go there so bad. Uh, where he focused on biomedical ethics and the relationship of science and faith sounds fascinating. And he is currently an activist in the areas of climate change, immigration and civil rights. And along those lines, he is now the host of the podcast American Heretic and the YouTube channel Seven Minute Politics. So welcome, Charlie. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well, thanks
2: for having me. So, Charlie, that's quite a smattering of uh, things that you talk about and do. Um, You know, as a Christian growing up, my parents told me to never talk about politics or faith or sex in public, but your podcast American Heretic Talks about all those things. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you seem to talk sex about it. in public. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, it, it, you seem to talk about everything from uh, Black Lives Matter to LGBTQIA plus equality to things like the Electoral College. I mean, these aren't things that your typical pastor has the courage to bring up. Um, most of them either shy away from politics or, you know, just assume that the gospel and politics don't mix at all. So uh, why are you so passionate about all these issues and how has that manifested itself in in your um, in your ministry?
0: Yeah, I, I grew up very similar to you. Um, I grew up in a kind of the evangelical Bible belt and politics was um, not necessarily off the table, but it was certainly assumed you would be of one political stripe and but politics and religion in general weren't talked about that much cause everyone tried to just be safe. Um, I think the, the thing that I would say that makes me so passionate about it as a pastor or as a follower of Christ is that when I made the connection, that's uh, actually pretty simple. I don't know why it took me so long to figure out that, um, loving your neighbor has a very direct implication in the world of politics, um, because that world affects our neighbors and those that were called to, to love. So that was a really big deal. And then I would also say probably, um, Maybe like a lot of pastors, I was very impacted by Dr. Martin Luther King, especially his letters from Birmingham Jail, hmm. when he um, delineated or articulated very beautifully the difference between a sort of peace that is an absence of tension versus a peace that is a presence of justice. Um, and so that that was like a really big changing point for me to understand that I had been only interested in a lack of tension. Instead mm. of conversations that were a presence of justice, especially for those that are um, often on the margins of society and didn't have it in the same life experiences that I had.
1: Yeah, but I'm guessing th- that shift for you um, really didn't come easy, right? I mean, for most of us, there's it comes with a lot of tension. It brings more tension in and it can make a lot of us go, well oh no, now I don't have peace, so I need to go back to what I once knew. So how did you navigate that? And especially then how other people responded to you as you were going through this shift?
0: Yeah, I think the funny thing is I almost ironically think I got some of the tools that have served me well later from right-wing evangelicalism. Because in a way, I see one of the things that I critique about the American evangelical, white evangelical church in particular, is their sort of... Victim mentality and um, the sort of they're always being persecuted, even though they're the most privileged class in our country. Um, but from that upbringing, I kind of learned that you, the world is going to hate you. <laughs> you know, you kind of get these messages mm. internalized. And, and even though I think that's kind of an inappropriate way to look at what some of those scriptures mean, in a way, it kind of prepared me for later in life going, oh, like sometimes when you take a stand for something, you might not be the most popular person in the room, but if it's motivated from a place of love and security, and you feel really rooted in the divine or that love, bringing love into the world, then I think that security can handle some of that tension. Um, and and of course, yeah, people have I've been threatened uh, quite frequently that I should be drowned hmm. at the bottom of the ocean or oh, I wow. should burn in hell. Um, but mostly I, by mostly by other Christians, correct? Oh yeah, I don't think yeah. a non-Christian has ever threatened me. <laughs> yeah, right? That's a, wow. Yeah, of course, makes you feel good all over, doesn't it? <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to know who which God you serve because yeah. he sounds great.
0: <laughs> yeah, e- exactly. And you know, but even in that, I I think that one of the things I'm really grateful for in my life arc is that I came out of that world, and I mm. know so many wonderful, loving white evangelical conservatives that it disallows me from being able to just label them all as evil or hateful. And Mm. so when I come across one that is particularly hateful, or I know that it's coming from a wound, I know that that's not who they want to be. And I also know that there's a lot of uh, people who would share beliefs with them that aren't as awful as they're being at that moment. so.
2: Mm. Or that they've simply been manipulated by, you know, a particular yeah. media organization to hate the other, be it, be terrified of the other um, and or realize that, you know, in some ways they are losing their place at the center. As you said, um, mm-hmm. when you begin to when you have been privileged um, and you begin to realize you have to share that privilege, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. Um but, so, let me let's just start with with something really simple, even before we go further. Um, let's talk about what politics is in general, and then how do we as Christians approach it? Because as you said, I think most of us, if we grew up in the church or grew up in evangelicalism, we grew up in that kind of right-wing Ronald Reagan, you Mm -hmm. know, Jesus is a Republican, um, cross flag, you know, all of those things that… My guess is you have also walked away from and and we have have even been enlightened uh, about. So how do you define politics and then how would you explain or argue for why Christians should be involved in the political arena?
0: Yeah, that's a really great. I think penetrating question um, that you have. That is the starting point. That's where you begin. And for me, politics. I always kind of go back to the. I'm I'm kind of a a nerd as a theologian with ancient languages. But polis, the word comes from this Latin word polis, which just means the city or the village or the community. I I think community is probably a more um, compelling interpretation of that word. And it's it's been so ingrained in us that politics are bad, and and for good reason because politics brings to mind partisan politics and money and politics and sleazy politicians, which is all part of the big picture. But I think when we allow that to be the cultural understanding of politics, we forget the goodness of politics of the idea of community. And again, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. would always say the beloved community, and that's mm. that actually is the phrase that I think of when I think of politics. I think of the beloved community. How do we Uh, share resources together. Uh, How do we take care of the least of these? How do we grow our economy? I think I I don't want to steal this analogy incorrectly without credit. I think I heard maybe Rob Bell one time use the analogy of politics is kind of like you, uh, you're in a plane crash in the, say the Andes mountains and there's 200 Mm -hmm. survivors and you get off the plane and you're in the mountains and you kind of have to gather around and go, okay, what do we have? What are the resources that we have? What are the skills that we have? Is there a doctor here? Uh, How do we take care of the wounded? Um, How do we figure out how we're going to get food? Um, I mean, that's kind of a little micro cause of what politics is in a way is it's just Mm -hmm. the beloved community saying, what are the resources we have? What are the problems we have? What are the gifts that we have? And then I think the thing that I feel the most positive about politics is at its best, it's uh, it's expressed in political imagination, um, how can we imagine a more beloved community? And that's what I see lacking the most in American politics is we get in these ruts and these rhythms and these talking points, and we forget that we we actually can imagine together a better world. And politics and government can be a big role in that. And then the second part of your question is, how would I um, try to inspire Christians to see a role in that? Again, it goes back to loving God and loving your neighbor, I mean, sometimes I think Christianity is so simple, um, pastors and theologians can't handle it. But, you know, Jesus literally just said, you want me to sum up the whole Bible? The Bible of his day was the law and prophets. And he directly said, love God and love your neighbor. And that's enough. I mean, that's pretty much theology in a nutshell right there. And that's directly (laughs) related to politics. The reason we (laughs) should be involved is because 42 million people in the United States of America live in poverty, which is the richest country in the history of the world in our species. And yet we... Are so unbelievably imbalanced that uh, nine million kids live in poverty and have food insecurity. So we have problems. We have the, the worst healthcare system out of OECD countries. So when we we look across the landscape, we go, "Oh, this isn't working." Like you mentioned, the Reagan world, the trickle down economics. We're actually kind of have bad political imagination. So I, I think Christians have a role in dreaming up how how can we love God and love our neighbor in the way that we imagine our society.
1: How how do we How do we join in having that political imagination? Cause I feel like, um, like as just a normal everyday person, it's like, I feel like the only thing I can do is vote for Mm -hmm. different politicians on in all the different, you know, not just presidential elections, but local ones. And then I'm like, put some things on my social media, you know, Mm -hmm. how do I, how do I change that or be part of changing that conversation? Uh, especially when it seems that there's such a big force in the political world of Christians, or at least self-proclaimed Christians, saying, we're going to do it this way. And <laughs> we think we're loving our neighbor by doing X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I 100% disagree with that. So then mm-hmm. how do I affect any kind of change?
0: Yeah, well, f- first of all, um, I wouldn't— uh, I would. I wouldn't in any way belittle just voting um, or social media posts. Cause sometimes it feels that way. There's this pressure of like, Oh, I'm not marching every day or I'm not meeting with our Senator or whatever. But uh, first of all, voting is, I'm a huge fan of democracy. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. outside of religion, even it's, it's not a perfect system, but it's the the best of a bunch of bad systems of government and mm-hmm. the, the freedom that we have to vote and for our school boards uh, and our, um, corporation commissions and our senators and at all, at all levels is an incredible duty. And uh, I would I would never think just voting is, is more than just voting. It's heroic. It's being a part of the process. And then social media posts is using your voice. Um, it, 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 you do have an audience and no matter who you are listening to this podcast, you might have 50 friends, but that's an enormous amount of people to see you take some sort of stand on social media that comes from a place of love. And I think those are really big deals. I almost think it's like a spectrum um, that everyone is going to be at a different place in their journey. Um, I'm, I'm very politically active. I meet regularly. I, I met with our mayor yesterday. I meet with our congressman regularly on climate change issues on immigration. And but that's mm-hmm. not for everybody. Not everybody has the privilege it takes to even have that access. I'm a very, very privileged person. And I think sometimes I think of when Jesus says to whom much has been given, much is expected. I think that's a direct shot across the bow about privilege. (laughs) And um, if you're a person who has a lot of privilege in our society, then there's maybe a higher calling to use that and leverage it. But whatever level of privilege we are in our society, we have a voice and we have a vote and we have our passion. And then I also think the other thing that I would add to that is like, I sometimes think we get crushed under the pressure of looking at other people and and what they're doing. And I think, I think America changes. I think the world changes one conversation at a time. Um, mm-hmm. I think it happens at Thanksgiving dinner when you finally stand up to your racist uncle or your homophobic aunt and say, hey, that's not okay to say that. Um, and let me tell you why. And I think those moments are what changes the entire culture. And I think they feel small sometimes, but they are actually what makes democracy and the beloved community work
1: okay, I, I love that, but there's a part of me that's like, but those conversations often go sour quick mm-hmm. <laughs> and cause like more tension to use that word again in the family or you know during that Thanksgiving gathering and it seems like it changes nothing in their minds. Um, so now what?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree, but that that I think is the tension that Martin Luther King was talking about. real peace is, is not an absence of tension. It's a, a comfort level with, and it may, obviously we've all experienced the aunt or the uncle or the mom or the dad or the sibling or the child that you think this is pointless. But what, what we don't know is what's so central here, psychoanalytically. We don't know what's changing over time. We're so trapped in our kind of prefrontal cortex of narrative of time, like streaming right now we can't often think about what things look like 20 years ago. And that that tensious moment might've been the beginning of a 20 year process for that person. Or often what I've found is it's not that person who may never change their mind because Tucker Carlson lives in their brain. But (laughs) it may be that someone sitting across the table that never says anything watches the kindness Mm. and the security from which you said that loving and strong thing. And they Mm. silently begin to change because they see their, aunt or uncle in a new light or you in a new light. And so I think when it comes from a place of love and security, which isn't easy, even when there's tension, um, I think things do change. And I think that it's just, Mm -hmm. that's the hard work of family. It's the hard work of democracy. It's the hard work of justice is that, um, we can't throw in the towel and say that it doesn't matter. Um,
2: Hmm. So help, help us with that because, um, I know my family, I think we're, we're pretty, um, normal as it relates to that. That evangelical bringing up where um, to be a Christian and to be political means that uh, you're pro-war, you're anti-immigration, you know God and guns, you're anti-science, you don't believe in in climate change. Um, you tend to not pay attention to the biggest terrorist uh, threat to the, to America today, which is white supremacy. Um, You seem to wrap the flag in the cross and, you know, the, the fact that on January 6th, uh, the, the pictures of Jesus and God storming the Capitol um, that was just okay. And so how do we change that narrative for people who, have just grown up believing that to be a Christian means to be Republican. How did that change for you? Besides even what you've already referenced uh, before with Martin Luther King, I mean, what does it look like for us to be able to say, "I believe in Jesus," that's why I potentially vote a Democrat, or that's why I'm more liberal, as opposed to, "Well, you've just lost the faith, and so now you're a Democrat," right? Because that's the narrative. So, right. so how do, we, yeah. how do we how do we how do we kind of spin that? as
0: you said, in a very loving way, in a gracious way? Uh, Well, you're right. It it didn't change just from a Martin Luther King speech for me growing up. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of it was just misinformation. Um, I very much am a spiritual uh, person and um, I very much feel connected to the Jesus narrative of loving your enemy and Radical forgiveness and inclusion and a great big banquet table. And I think the thing, the the way that I like to tell the story of a shift from Republican to Democrat for me personally, and I actually don't even care about those labels because 20 years from now, the Democratic Party could be a total train wreck. I don't have any allegiance (laughs) to that party. It just feels like right right now it's kind of low hanging fruit. It, It aligns more with the values that I think Jesus taught. but. I think that's the key for me as a person of faith and a pastor is that I always tell people, I think I was always liberal because I was the kind of evangelical kid who actually read the Bible. I was one of the few that read my Bible every single day. Mm -hmm. And the Bible, as complicated as a whole nother question there we can look at, but I, I couldn't help but escape even when I was 10 years old reading through the Bible that it seemed to me that God very much cared about the poor. And it Mm -hmm. seemed to me pretty obvious that God had a heart for foreigners or outsiders. And it seemed pretty obvious to me that the rich were not the heroes of these stories, Um, especially reading the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus. And I can remember asking questions when I was very young of going, "Wait, I don't understand why are we like trying to promote richness or violence versus nonviolence. It's pretty clear when you read the Bible and turning the other cheek uh, that Jesus would not have been on the forefront of the Iraq war. But I was told, oh, trust trust, trust us, we, we who know more know that it's a little more complicated than your 10-year-old mind. Mm-hmm. But for me, as I grew up and um, again, again, massively because of privilege and had the opportunity to have education and life experiences, I started to see uh, that I just wasn't buying what they were selling anymore. And so I don't even say that I really converted to liberalism. I just kind of had the scales fall off that um, I kind of always knew that central to my faith was a concern for the poor and a commitment to nonviolence and radical love. And it, it became increasingly clear to me, especially over the last 15 years, that I was not finding that in the Republican party. It was quite the opposite. Um, I mean, racism explicitly, like you said, white supremacy. I'm so thankful that our president called that out in his speech last night. And um. Yeah. And so for me, it was a more of a scales falling off more than a transition. It was a more of a getting new information about what the party platforms actually are. And of course we, we could dive into the layers of complicated. Things. I would say abortion was the number one thing that kept me anchored the longest into the Republican party. And again, I think it was because I didn't understand the issues. I kind of bought the talking points and they're so emotional, those talking points, because they tap right. into the best parts of who we are. Um, our love and care and concern for a voiceless child is a good, holy thing, uh, but it's often packaged with a lot of misinformation about a really complex biomedical ethics issue. Right. Well, and it ties into healthcare reform as well, correct? Mm-hmm. You know,
2: for like sure. I, I was trying to have this conversation with a friend of mine who couldn't understand why I was, you know, voting a Democrat because of the abortion issue. And I said, well, actually, you know, if you really begin to unpack the problem Um, Yes, I don't like abortions. However, um, one, I believe in freedom. And two, I believe that the greatest um, benefit to allowing someone to keep a child that they want is providing them access to health care and providing them access to a free economy. And, you know, that seems to make the abortion rates decline um, and Feels like that over here. Like what you're saying, you're pro-life, but uh, are you really? (laughs) I'm not sure that you are. So yeah, it's much more complex than we want it to be.
0: Yeah, and I try to honor and recognize the goodness in someone who's challenged me on that, and find common ground that I do value life from all life. uh, as complicated, and I and I try to just start with a very simple statement that they don't like to hear is that I fully believe and can back up that voting for Republicans will increase the abortion rate and the highest abortion rates in the world by country are countries where abortion is the most illegal. So um, criminalizing abortion does not lower abortion. It actually increases it. And what we know um, from unbelievable amounts of peer reviewed studies is that um, economic inequality and lack of healthcare, as you said, are the primary causes that, uh, push people towards those difficult choices and and I also try to bring people to understand that it really isn't simple um you know I, if you turn on fox news you're going to, all you're going to hear about is laws uh, about late term abortions which are actually the most complicated ethically nobody i mean just think i mean no sane woman is going to carry a pregnancy to the very end and then decide oh i actually don't want this baby that's not right. how humans behave these are always the most tragic these are abortions with families who have a crib and a name picked out and are praying for this baby and are often pro-lives themselves. And they get the worst, um, news they could ever imagine. When a doctor says your child's brainstem isn't fully developed, it's going to be born and slowly suffocate for one hour. Um, and you have to make a choice that you never thought you'd have to make. Um, and of course if you hear about late term abortions in conservative circles, it's just murdering babies as they're being born. And it's like, no, these right. are literally the greatest, hardest, most heartbreaking decision that any Christian parent would ever have to make. And, and I think people just aren't aware of the biomedical ethics. Uh, they don't think about ectopic pregnancies um, that will for sure kill a mom um, and having to make that hard choice and everything in between where there's an 80% chance mom is going to die and a 20% chance baby is going to die. Those are things that, It's ironic to me that the the party who's so anti government wants the government to make that choice for them all of a sudden. (laughs) Right. You know. Oh yeah. I've
1: definitely uh talked with that with my husband about that. Like, wait, I thought they were like a small government Mm -hmm. party and yet they want the government to intervene. Doesn't make
0: sense. But they seem to be all about freedom until it comes to women or minorities. They they really (laughs) like uh, freedom of choice for white privileged men. Yeah. Yep.
1: Interesting. Uh well so Obviously, from everything you've said, you're you're not saying to just pick sides or stay allegiant to one party. So, what do you suggest we use as our guide, not only in like how we see different political issues, but then also like choosing which battles to fight and mm. even how to fight them. And I hate even using the 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 war <laughs> language, mm. like battle and fight. But, um i i do think there's something to be said for standing up for something that we really believe is uh like you said radical love and um showing that love to everyone not just some and so like how do we how do how do we choose how to go about this or how do we decide which ones are worth <laughs> picking up mm-hmm. the the sword, not the sword. I don't even see We're so steeped in this language. I don't even know how to say it. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Even better. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. How do we, how do we do that?
0: Yeah. I think that I, I, first of all, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that's a really, what makes that a great question is anyone who has a really pat, clear answer for that, I don't think has really thought long and hard about how difficult that is. I mean, I think all of us who are on a journey of deep care and compassion, um, whatever you want to call it, progressivism, liberalism, struggle with the overwhelming fact of I, I mean I have to care, now I have to care about everything. I mean, that's the benefit of being a, a white male conservative, especially you don't have to care about anything. <laughs> you can just but when you start caring about everything, it's overwhelming. How do you pick your battles, like you said using that language? How do you and I don't think there's a right answer. Um, I, I I would I would categorize it in two different ways. Uh, if as a pastor I was talking to someone who identifies as a follower of Christ, um, and that, and that was the context in which they were asking me, then I would say, okay, well then let's look at, uh, the way of being that Jesus was talking about in the kingdom of God. And let's use that as our anchor point instead of, uh, a partisan party platform, um, loving enemies and nonviolence and care for the poor and healing the healthcare. And, I, and so for me, I don't care what the party name is. I'm going to be about that, this way of being in the world that brings healing and equality and, and justice, um, but if it's someone who's not a follower of Christ of a different religion or no faith at all, then I would say, okay, what's your intuition? What what, what does love look like for you? So I, I would start with these core values, try to find common ground on core values as an anchor point that separates us away from just following some party blindly. Um, but then the second part of your question about picking which issues to care about, that's where I think about analogies like family or church. You know, in, in our church, I have these... Um, radical women that I work with who are just so passionate about undocumented families that have lost their jobs and don't have a stimulus checks and don't have Mm -hmm. healthcare because of the pandemic. And so they just lead the charge of connecting to 150 families that don't have food right now. And, and they rally food boxes and, and they don't spend a lot of time worrying about climate change. Um, And climate change is probably in the triage list, something that may be bigger than any of this. But we're a family, we're a community. And I think that it, it just works out. That's kind of the mystery of how things are. When people follow their passions, what's the, is it Howard Thurman that says, we should find the thing that makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who are fully alive. I think mm. it's okay to kind of listen to our bodies and tap into our intuition and see what we're passionate about. And and do, do one or two things really well, instead of stressing out that we can't do 30 things and fix the whole world. I think there's a humility in that. I think it's a little bit of a narcissistic complex to think that we could take on every issue anyway. And so I think maybe we just listen to ourselves and find the things that in love we're really passionate about and go do that really well. How do we, um, start a conversation with
2: loved ones or friends or family who, really ardently believe in the notion of Christian nationalism. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we've seen this very uh, clearly over the last several months, but truly it's the idea or the belief that, you know, the American nation is defined by Christianity, and that our government should take active steps to keep it that way. And, Really, in particular, that Christian nationalists assert that America you know, is and was uh, a Christian nation and must remain so, not necessarily just in our history, but also as like a prescriptive way of being uh, in the future. So to me, Christian nationalism is like the height of heresy uh, because mm-hmm. we are combining the kingdom of God with a very particular infallible nation. But so many uh, Christians don't see it that way, and they really believe that it is our right and our duty to um, coerce and use Christianity as you know, a, a weapon to control. Um, can you help us untangle our faith from our national allegiance, especially for those who just really struggle to do so?
0: I don't know. Um, I share that same concern. Um, it's such a, a cancerous, uh, devastating reality in the American church right now. Um, it, 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 that one's really hard for me, Gary Allen, because mm-hmm. to me it's intuitive. If you're, especially if you identify in some way with the the way of Christ. Um, to set up an idol in the nation, or, or if you have any exposure to what the, the book of Revelation is actually about as a beautiful political cartoon of imagery of critiquing Rome. Um, if you have right. any context of what those early Christians were about and in, in taking on Rome as a beast and a whore, um, it's a pretty clear message that it's a giant mistake to equate A nation or one group. And I think it's bigger than nationalism because it's, it it taps into our evolutionary brain of who's in and who's out. I mean, and it starts at the lowest level. I mean, we get super excited about our high school football team, or even before that, our own personal family. We don't want to be embarrassed by our family. We want to think that our family's better than other families or our high school or middle school is better. And our college is better. It's like human. And so it just goes up. We think our state's the greatest. We think our nation's the greatest. And then at the darkest versions, we think our skin color is the greatest, or we think our mm-hmm. education level is the greatest. There's, it, It's just like, and I think that's why I like words like sin, even though words like sin have been so abused and abusive and traumatizing for so many people in their actual context. We need sort of hellish language to talk about the worst parts of human psychosis, which are about who's in and who's out and whose country is better than another country. But maybe specifically to your question of how would you take on talking to a family member about that cancer without blowing it up or breaking a relationship? I think what I would encourage or what I've found in my own family, my family's had a dramatic uh, transformation over the last five years even, but I find that um, monologuing um, and teaching, even if per se, I have a lot of resources or information about the history of American nationalism. Um, that doesn't tend to change hearts as much as asking questions. Hmm. Um, I found the Socratic method. I think there's a reason Jesus asked questions. Do you want to get well? What do you want me to do for you? I find those to be the most compelling parts of the gospel narratives when, uh, according to Christian theology, this is God incarnate the divine and its perfect picture for us in the face of a human and how would an all-knowing God need information um, mm-hmm. well asking questions must have more than just information gathering power mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they actually empower the other person and so for me I just if I'm in a room at Thanksgiving and I'm with a family member who's just you know worshiping the idol of America I just ask them what they think about sons and daughters who live in Haiti and I ask them mm-hmm. if they've ever been there and ask them if I think that they're, are they just as important as Americans or, or Guatemalans? Like, how do you personally feel about Jose, my friend? And I tell him a story, mm-hmm. you know, and I often find that asking questions empowers people because then it's on them to start talking about themselves and their own identity. And they want to project themselves as a loving, kind person. And that yeah. often disarms some of it. And it's kind of, it's kind of low hanging fruit actually. Um, I think intellectually to not, idolize a nation, especially if you can just like put yourself in Germany in 1942 and, you know, like, go. This doesn't always really work out when you um, put all your hopes in the country. And again, back to just a a nice little slam on Republicans. It's so ironic to me that they're (laughs) so – anti-government and, and so anti, and then they're like the most pro-America. It's kind of like, you kind of can't have it both ways. (laughs) It's kind of a strange hypocrisy. Well, and, and history shows us
2: that, um, it never works out when the church gets in bed with a state, you know, whether it's Nazi Germany or Constantine or Mm -hmm. anything in between, you know, when, when that happens, the witness of the church is just completely destroyed, and suddenly our allegiance is to the flag as opposed to the cross. And again, it, it does feel like low-hanging fruit, and yet that seems to be a stumbling block to a lot of people.
0: Because it feels so good. Um, it's a drug for your amygdala to be in the greatest nation on earth, um, <laughs> because you get to tap into this thing outside of yourself and be a part of something bigger. And and that's what, that's what we're fighting against with these questions is like, I know that drug feels really good, um, but it's an illusion. And, hmm. uh, but well said, I think Constantine history is writ large with the d- disastrous effects of trying to pair Christianity with power when Christianity itself at its essence is a critique of power. <laughs> right. Well,
1: for people like that, I do see I've even been in conversations with people where they literally say like God had a chosen nation in Mm -hmm. Israel um, way back when, and he chose those people. They were like more special than everyone else. And that has just kind of transferred over now into America because we put God like at the center and all that. Um, (laughs) Those are the situations where I'm like, I don't. I don't know how to converse with you on this when it it's like a slight knowledge of the Bible, but not really, and yet it's still this claim to this authority of like, well, the Bible says it. So, I mean, I can't. It's not my fault that now America is God's chosen nation. So, what do you do then?
2: Well, I going to jump into that and add to it. Like, its slight knowledge of the Bible in its gross negligence as it relates to American history. But like you cannot say America is exceptional. You cannot say that America is a Christian nation when you actually understand our history. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll sort of answer that, but I want to hear your, your answer as well, because to me, that is the foundational myth that Christians have adopted, is we are special, we are unique, we are righteous. But you cannot open uh, any history book and and continue to believe that based on genocide and based on the way we Mm -hmm. treated Native Americans and based on, um, you know, our our history with slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do we how do we how do we help people, you know, move beyond that lie, as Melanie asked?
0: Man, that's really, really hard to come up with good questions to ask them. But um, (laughs) I I would start with, you know, Melanie, I I know these sort of uh, personalities or this sort of worldview that you're talking about and encounter them often. Um, And I I start to, I actually start by asking questions about Israel instead of America. Mm. And and I start to ask them just some challenging questions about if, do they think Israel is still chosen? Um, Are they more important than America? And oftentimes that group of people do think that. They think Israel is even more special than America. And we're kind of like number two in a strange way, which is all ridiculous anyway. But then I start to ask them, who, who is Israel? So is Israel any – is it human beings that live in the national borders that were set up in 1948? So like every Jewish person, every Muslim person, every Christian, every atheist that lives in Tel Aviv – are, are they Israel mm. or is Israel, um, a genetic lineage? Like it's somehow you, your ancestors were part of Israel at some point. And at what point was that in the past and how Israel do you have to be to be in that group? Do you have to be 50% Israeli, um, in your bloodline? Um, or is Israel belief system? Is it people who believe in Jewishness? Is it, <laughs> they're not Christians, but they're Hasidic. Is it the Hasidic Jews? Is that the the right Jewish to be a part of. And when I start to ask these questions, it starts to, I think, deconstruct the silliness of the idea that nations even exist. (laughs) And 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 the same thing actually happens with America. It's like, okay, so what about an undocumented immigrant or an immigrant here? Or what about um, a, a Muslim terrorist or a white supremacist terrorist who is an American citizen? Are they the chosen of God? And I start to try to just help people understand the silliness of what nation states are philosophically, and then to try to attach that to God. And then I think you know you could also get into this whole area of unpacking the chosenness of Israel. What is the Bible? This conversation about how humans relate to God. And, and you see this progression. You see a progressive revelation. Of course, this is not something theologically, most people would want to be going into the rabbit hole of. But what we see is a people who made an idol and made their nation an idol. And then their prophets came in and said, yeah, but God blessed you. So you'll bless all nations. And you see the story get bigger and bigger as there's this progressive unveiling of, Oh, actually it's not really about Israel. It's about every nation. And I think Mm -hmm. that kind of like builds up in this crescendo to where you finally have this Messiah figure literally flipping over tables In the court of Gentiles at the temple, the place where God and humans reside, saying, my house is to be a house of all nations. And you see this sort of catastrophic anger in the face of God saying, you will not set up barriers that keep anyone away, no matter what nation or um, anything. I mean, it's actually beautiful. Eunuchs were included in that, which would be Mm. an analogous to LGBTQ people who are forbidden Mm. from coming in the temple. Mm -hmm. And I, and I love that aspect of um, being a follower of Christ is that Jesus was super angry and activist, and he destroyed property and he burned it down to challenge the religious power of the day. That's Mm -hmm. something I noticed when I was a kid that I could never escape from the gospels is that Jesus seemed to be super (laughs) anti-religion. And I think (laughs) that's something that actually has always uh, kept me in the faith because Jesus of Nazareth has always gotten bigger for me instead of smaller. And when I interact with a lot of Christians in these contexts, I'm like, oh, oh, you're still, you still know a small Jesus. And that's okay. I think God is mm-hmm. the divine can connect with them even through a small Jesus, but they don't yet know how big and beautiful and inclusive and radical um, Christ actually is. Hmm. You mentioned this. So I, I want to go there. Um,
2: often the personal and the political come together or coalesce. Uh, around very important topics. And one of them is the LGBTQIA conversation, uh, both politically, uh, personally, and uh, religiously, as it relates to same sex marriage, as it relates to full equality, uh, as it relates to inclusion in our churches. You have embraced um, a very inclusive stance as it relates to our friends and family uh, who identify. Um, with that, can can you tell us how and why you came to that conclusion based on um, Christianity and and mm-hmm. not as opposed to it?
0: Ooh, yeah, that's a, a hard one to be concise on. I, I would say, strangely, <laughs> I'm I'm actually very embarrassed of this, but that was sort of the last brick to fall for me several years ago. It took 20 years of theological journey and wrestling with that for me to change my mind. Not on not on the value. I mean, I. And I also want to kind of, in a way, um, lift up or acknowledge that there are a lot of conservative Christians who are not affirming who don't hate LGBT people. They love them. And of course you, you've heard all the sayings, like uh, they love the sinner and hate the sin, which is so traumatizing, but,
2: <laughs> right, uh, but right. they actually
0: mean it. They don't understand it's traumatizing. They, their heart is I actually, I love anybody. I'm a sinner. I love everybody. Right. Right. And I was in that camp for a long time. Oh, I love, I love LGBT people and I want them around and be a part of the community. But I didn't understand um, that at the core, I still believe that their very existence was sinful or at least participating in love ironically for them was sinful. Um, yeah, that journey was really shaped by, um, if I think back theologically, um, you know, actually Rachel held Evans, I'm sure you're familiar with who she mm-hmm. is. Sure. Sure. I, I had little kids at home and she was writing a mom blog and my, my wife's amazing. She's about to finish her PhD and it's super busy. And I was kind of like, I used to read her mom blog basically as a stay-at-home mom and <laughs> but she also would she became more and more theological. Um, she was one of the first Christians in that world that I was running in who mentioned kind of off-cuff that she was affirming and then wrote some blogs about it and that intrigued me and op- I was like, "Hmm, well, that's not what I think." And I and then mm-hmm. I started going down the rabbit hole of really researching. Of course, I also again ended up in Saint Andrews and wrote long <laughs> academic papers and read obscene amounts of literature from theologians about what do we do with these six clobber passages in the Bible. Um, (laughs) And, you know, really, there there really aren't that strong. I mean, Leviticus Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 22 are jokes. I mean, they're right next to don't eat shellfish. Like anyone who draws their ethics from Leviticus is going to have a really hard time um, living their life. That's just like an ancient recording of, of, uh, what a tribal people were doing back then. Um, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah has literally nothing to do with LGBT and everything to do with angel rape. So um, and Ezekiel, (laughs) the prophet even explicitly says, what was the crime of Sodom and Gomorrah? He said it was inhospitality to strangers. So it was ironically not homosexuality. And then you have the three passages in the New Testament. Um, Romans 1 probably being the most important conversation to have. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Timothy 2 where we have these words that Paul wrote in these lists of sins uh, in, in the German theological term, it's called a hastafel, a list of house sins. And there's these words are and malakoi in the Greek that we really don't fully know what they mean. I studied textual criticism at the university of Texas and, and learned Greek and Hebrew. And there's a couple words, not many, we have a very good idea of what the Bible says, but there's a couple words that we don't really know what they mean. And as you guys probably know, homosexuality wasn't used to translate either of those words until 1946. And Mm -hmm. that was very motivated by um, a conservative movement uh, against modernism. And then you get to Romans 1. And for me, I just say Romans 1, I, I think, makes a lot of sense theologically. It's Paul making this argument that starts, I mean, any evangelical Christian is familiar with the Romans road. He's presenting the gospel and he starts with how messed up the world is. And what he's going to do in this letter to this ancient community of underground, mostly women-led people of color in Rome, is he's going to show them that the world is messed up. He's going to go on to say that we're all kind of messed up and that there's an amazing story of grace and connection and hope and love. And in that opening chapter, when he's talking about how messed up the world is, um, there's a couple things to understand. First of all, when he was writing that, uh, Claudius and infamous emperors were raping young boys and throwing them off cliffs as Mm -hmm. a, an excess of sexuality. And Mm -hmm. as he was using this language, any first century reader would be like, Oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about this gross power dynamic of twisted sexuality. And he even says that he's talking about when we give over, if you read Romans one, just in the English, it's clear that he's saying, first of all, we give over to our lustful desires. So he begins with this really important word that means wanting to possess something that's not yours. That's what lust is. It's this greedy Self-centered. It's not it has nothing to do with romantic love or commitment. And then he goes on to very explicitly explain that men and women are changing their natural desires for unnatural ones, which is not what we're talking about with our LGBTQI friends, who's very we know scientifically, we know experientially. I would say theologically and philosophically, that their natural love is hardwired uh, for the same gender, just like we see in the animal yeah. kingdom. And when we're just talking about the homosexuality piece of the LGBTQI spectrum. And so for me, I actually agree with Romans one. I don't even tweak it or ignore it. I think that there is a lot of um, sexuality that is dangerous or harmful or non-consensual that doesn't include enthusiastic, informed adult consent. And I think that's what Romans 1 is talking about, this lustful, selfish twist of sexuality. And I think we do need to talk about that with our children and what sexuality can be healthy or what it can be gross. So I don't have any problem even with Romans 1. I'm kind of, and I even, and this is hard to say in liberal circles, but I think there is in homosexual sex lives, in heterosexual sex lives, everything in between, there are unhealthy sexual acts. Like I don't Mm -hmm. think all... Homosexual sex is good. I don't think all heterosexual sex is good because it doesn't all involve uh, involve consent or adults or healthy boundaries um, in that loving intimacy. So Hmm. I think that we need to find this ability to talk about sexual ethics that's very difficult for us um, because we've been mired in purity culture and traumatized by that. And conservative talking points. And I I think that for me, it was all of that, which is really not normal. Most people don't go through a theological journey. Most people either struggle themselves with their own sexual identity, and that changes things, or they know someone they love dearly. um, And they realize that that person is either a wonderful follower of Christ or a wonderful person, and it challenges everything they were taught about the evilness. Um, I guess I, I know that's a long answer for a big question, but the other thing <laughs> that I think was a huge tipping point for me is when I realized that I was basically, when I was holding that conservative position all those years ago, I was basically more concerned about stopping two people from loving each other than um, hundreds of thousands of uh, bombs being dropped, killing children. And mm. it's like, I don't think that we're really dialed in on ethics when we're trying to stop two people from loving each other. We're Mm. we're kind of missing the point. And I, and I don't think that the Bible actually does forbid any of that, um, loving, healthy sexuality. Mm.
1: Mm. That's the most concise yet thorough (laughs) explanation of that that I've ever heard. And so thank you for taking the time to do that. Um, Mm. and, I mean, obviously we could talk about it for so much longer and we could delve into all the different Greek words and Hebrew Mm -hmm. words and translations and all that, um, which we don't have time for. But I think that that is super helpful for people who have had those experiences of like, I know someone, how can Mm -hmm. they be a bad person for this? How can I say, no, you can't love people? Uh, So I think that's super helpful for people who are in that boat. Um, but since we are running out of time, I just want to ask you the question that we try to ask everyone because um, we think it, it matters. Um, sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in what's wrong or broken that we forget to have that imagination like you talked about. So um, as a pastor, as a theologian, when you look at the future of faith and maybe even of Christians being vol- involved in politics, what gives you hope?
0: Oh, young people, uh, love, <laughs> um, our friends of color, uh, our LGBTQI plus siblings. I think the world is better today than it was in 1984 and 1996. And it's still very messed up. Um, uh, but I have so much hope because, I see um, I see love, I, I can't remember who said it. it might have been Martin Luther King, but justice is love in the streets. Mm-hmm. And I see love in the streets all the time, uh, where I live and where I came from. And I have a lot of hope for my own faith tradition uh, because I personally refuse uh, to let this um, conservative, dark, patriarchal white supremacist version of American Christianity sink this ship. And it, it can't, I I just believe that the way of Christ is so compelling, um, of loving enemy and radical forgiveness and radical inclusion, a church for everyone, a community for everyone, regardless of what you believe, um, is so hopeful and so inspiring. And I, I think there's so much art being created right now. There's so much Hmm. good theology, um, I mean, to use religious language, I think there's a wind blowing a spirit. Uh, um, I just think you can't keep Christ dead. I mean, that's what resurrection means to me anyway. (laughs) It just keeps bursting forth. Mm -hmm. And and I I think maybe it was Rachel Held Evans, but I think she wrote in a book one time that the best thing that could ever happen for Christianity America is for it to die because Christianity has always been about resurrection. It just Mm -hmm. won't stay dead because it's love. I mean, I I, it's overly simple, but when John, as an old man, after he had followed Christ as a teenager, and then he had watched the explosion of this church into Gentile communities, and it got bigger and bigger, and it was led by women, all these things. And writing from Ephesus as an old man, twice in this letter, he says, God is love. And that, to me, is the anchor, the center point, the lens through which I look at all of Christianity, the Bible worldview is that God is love. And, and then he says something even more radical, whoever lives in love lives in God. Mm. Um, that's a radically inclusive mm. statement that makes me so excited about my Muslim siblings that I love dearly and my Buddhist mm. siblings and my atheist siblings and my Christian siblings is that when they hold their little babies at night and they fall asleep on their chests and they're caught up in the numinous experience of love, then they are living in God and When we reach our hand across the food line and serve the poor, God is there. So I I guess I have hope in God and I have hope in love.
2: Hmm. Wow. All right. That was our last serious question. Um, (laughs) But we do have some fun rapid fire questions to end on, if you're okay with that. Oh yeah, go for it. Okay. All right. So you have no clue what we're about to ask. No, we I, don't I even was know say, what I don't we're remember any
0: discussion ask. about <laughs> this. <Yeah. laughs>
2: All right. So first kind of rapid fire question, just go with just, just go with your gut. What's something about pandemic life that you've actually enjoyed
0: or been grateful for? Oh, family time. I mean, it's not necessarily fun. I mean, I feel guilty of how much we've loved pandemic time. I have four kids and they're <laughs> at the best ages. I've got uh, 15, 14, 11, and 10. And it's basically like a frat sorority house. We just have had so much fun. Yeah, I love family <laughs> nice. time.
1: That's nice. That's awesome. Okay. Uh-huh. What's something about pandemic life that you really don't enjoy?
0: Well, I don't. I'm excited to meet. where are I told you guys earlier, but our church is meeting for the first time this coming up week, and I miss our community, face to face community. I, I miss hugs and physical touch. I think that's pretty common for all of us. That um, I'm ready for hugs and love.
2: Yep. All right. You did doctoral work in Scotland. Um, what was your most uh, enjoyable thing about living overseas?
0: Uh, yeah. So I actually did it back. I would go back and forth, live short periods of time over in St. Andrews. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I love the people. Um, I love travel. Um, but th- my particular program, because I wasn't the only one going back and forth, I was basically with 30 other theologians from that were Egyptian Coptic monks and Roman Catholics studying at the Vatican and Slovakian women pastors and Asian women from the underground church and South American theologians, the diversity of people trying to follow Jesus in that program will forever be a picture of kingdom to me. And it's so exciting, such a gift. Yeah.
1: Wow. Uh, Okay. What's your signature phrase that you say when you're preaching?
0: Oh, man, that's a good... That's a good question. I think if you asked my staff, they would have a long list of <laughs> things that they would uh, make fun of me for. But I, I mean, we, we say church for everyone is kind of something we say mm. all the time. Mm. Um, man, that's actually a really hard question because I know I'm obnoxious and saying the same phrases over the time.
1: <laughs> I think yeah. we all have them. Yeah. I've probably
0: slipped some into this podcast. I typically talk about the way of being when I talk about the kingdom of God. Um, Mm, I think I've been made fun of for that. I I get made fun of for saying stack hands all the time. We can stack hands on this. Um, Yeah, just quirky stuff like that. (laughs) That's funny. All right, last question. Um, Can you
2: recommend uh, a book that would help our readers just begin to put together This whole notion of the politics of Jesus and what that might look like to live out your faith in a very subversive, liberating way.
0: Yeah. um, Off the top of my head, there's two books. Uh, One book that I recommend to everyone that is just so accessible. I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Zahn's work, but. Mm. um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God is a book that I want everybody to read. Um, I think he's a great communicator across, and I think he's a safe communicator for some a little bit more conservative people right? because of his story and his ability to communicate. And then if you want a little heavier lifting about politics, um, it's kind of a boring title, but there's a book called Doing Christian Ethics from the, Mar- from the Margins. And it's by Miguel de la Torre. He's a Latino oh, yeah. theologian. Yeah, I've heard of him. Well, he's in Denver, aren't we? Isn't one of you in Colorado? Yeah, I'm in Colorado. Yeah, yeah Gary Allen. Yeah, I think he, I think he's in at, at Denver. Um, but that actually had a huge impact on me. It's very academic and it's very deep, but it goes into pretty much every political issue in theological depth. And it's great coming from his sort of South American perspective. Mm-hmm. And that one really transformed me and really lit my fire. So those are the two Mm. I would recommend. Mm. Nice. Well, Charlie, this has been
2: fantastic, uh, enlightening, fun, convicting for anyone who's interested, um, not only about you, but in your podcast and YouTube channel, where can we direct them?
0: Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, Americanheretic.org, or if you just search for it on podcasting stuff, um, is the podcast. And yeah, I have the YouTube channel, Seven Minute Politics, that I basically just set up uh, for the election last year to try to give people a resource to have some of those hard conversations. And, uh, and then our church, if you're interested in our online services uh, or backlog series or anything, is uh, flagstaffcommons.com. Um, and you can find all those resources.
1: Awesome. I'll make sure to link to all of that in our show notes as well. So people can find them there also, but I have to say, Charlie, I feel like you fed my soul today. So thank you so much for your time and for, um, all your wisdom. And also just even I, I felt your peace today. So thank you for yeah. that.
0: Mm. Well, I really enjoyed it. I'm very honored to, to to be here today. So thank you. Thank you very much.
1: And that's all we have for you today. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And before you go, we'd like to ask you to consider becoming a Patreon patron of this humble little show. It may not seem like it, but it takes hours upon hours to create each episode and get them out to you each week. And whether you knew this or not, it's just me and Gary Allen with my husband, Josh, doing all the editing simply out of the goodness of his heart. So your contributions to the show will not only help us to continue producing quality content, it also gets you access to each show five days early. You get exclusive content and first dibs on merch when we finally get to that point. Every little bit helps, so head to patreon.com slash holyheretics to become a patron. Thank you. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge.